Hello and welcome to the TetraCast, RPG Sites regular podcast. My name is Brian Vitali, and joining me today are George Foster. Hello. Adam Vitali. Hey guys. And James Galizio. Hello guys. So this is our second edition of the podcast for this year. We talked about doing this, you know, twice a month or something like that, but we all got together today and just decided, hey, we're all ready. We all want to talk. Let's let's just do it again this week. So we've got a bit to talk about this week, talking about Kingdom Hearts a lot and games we've been playing. Uh, at the start, we're just going to talk about what we've been doing since the last time we came together, about finishing up some topics that we discussed last week, what we've been doing throughout the last seven days, and then we'll go into well, what we're looking ahead. So, uh, Adam, you've been playing Saga Scarlet Grace, continuing through that since last week. We can just start there if you don't have any problems with that. Yeah, that's fine. Um, as I said last week, basically, I, I believe I, I really, really like this game. And I had played most of it before the holiday or around the holiday. Um, so let me just, uh, I guess, back up a second here. So Saga Scarlet Grace has four different characters you can play as. And I was playing as Arpina as my first character playthrough. And in that playthrough, I pretty much exhausted what there is to do in the game. So you, you're set on a large world map. And you if you just critical path the storyline, it's not a terribly long game. Um, maybe like, I don't know, 25, 40 hours, somewhere in that in that range. But if you do like everything that is open to you and available to you and all the quests and all the side quests, it took me like, I don't know, 60 to 70 hours or something like that. Because there's a lot. Um, yeah, and uh, there are lots of, um, and this is the sort of thing I like in these sorts of games. There are lots of additional um, bosses in the game and they are legitimately tough to the point where in this game, you can't really in this game, you can't really grind. You can't just uh, sit and sit in a spot and level up forever. You can do that a little bit, but really what you have to do is you have to upgrade your materials, upgrade your equipment, and uh, not only that, but actually have to like coordinate your party to adjust to the strategy for these different bosses. And like, okay, so this boss, I really need to have two different units basically set as blocking roles. So they, all they do is literally just eat up tank up damage and protect the other two characters in my team who are dealing damage and there was one boss that i found was the best way to take him out was to drain him of his bp all the time so i had two different mages basically just sitting there casting this hyper gravity spell over and over and over again and what that would do is it would drain the boss's basically ability to move at all times um but the thing is that strategy takes forever uh, I think I posted a screenshot out of it on my own Twitter that it was like a 96 round battle. <laughs> and so how long is... how long is that in uh, in minutes or in hours? Well, it was probably like half an hour or something like that. Um, but most battles in this game are so Saga Scarlet Grace normally has pretty quick battles. Um, they're not usually very extended. You're trying to you're, you're trying to be very efficient, trying to get in and out as fast as possible. But this time, it like 96 rounds. Just a battle is normally like five rounds so it was much much now, longer than usual. when you mentioned that you can't just simply grind in one place for someone that's less familiar with the saga series it's because the enemies kind of have like a sliding scale of their their strength well not you, quite right? that that's 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 a saga that's a familiar saga um style but it's not quite that the thing is is that your character stats in the game 
you raise your HP um, and then you raise your proficiency in your weapon the more you use it. So like when you're grinding, those are the main things you are grinding. But once you get to a point near the end of the game, your your HP is maxed out and your your weapon proficiency, it, it I don't know if it's a hard lock, but it basically starts slowing down tremendously around, I think, 50 uh, proficiency. So at that point, just doing more battles isn't really... Um, isn't really uh, helping you at all, but uh, you, so you kind of get to a point where you're sort of maxed out. And then at that point, you have to make sure you really have like the best equipment on and the best armor on. Now, this, this game has multiple protagonists, and I actually did start a second playthrough as, as Leonardo this time. And immediately the cast and like the character style in this, in this uh, playthrough with a different character, it's set in the same world and it has like generally the same format. But it's way it's it's a lot sillier than Arpino's playthrough. It's got like a, just a different a different tone to things. But also this game just more functionally has uh, the way that you can carry over some things from from playthrough to playthrough. For example, like I took out um, about fifteen of the twenty super bosses, but because of the choices I made in my playthrough, there are still like five more super bosses I haven't been able to fight. And so basically, in the second playthrough. Um, I'm training up a new team with, with new characters and I'm hoping to fight some of these other bosses too. And the ultimate goal is once you beat all these like 20 different, they're, they're called Scarlet Fiends, you can fight basically the ultimate boss of the game. So that's kind of your ultimate goal that I'm slowly working towards. All right. It definitely sounds like a sort of game where if you really get into it, you could sink a lot of time into it, especially oh, yeah. if you want to just keep rolling through those, those, uh, playthrough to playthrough carryovers uh george did you have a comment about uh, saga scarlet grace well I, I was just gonna say i think one of my favorite parts of any rpg is those sort of post-game really really tough bosses i think i i've just always loved that um and we'll talk more about that when we get to kingdom hearts remind because i have a lot to say there but it's just it's always been the best bit to see your leveled up character like actually because by that point in the game, you're probably taking out most enemies with ease. So to see something challenge you, and you have to go back up that mountain of progressing again, I just it's just cool. I love that. Well, we talked last week about how I think all of us here are kind of on the same page that we all really enjoy boss fights. So why not take them to the nth degree and make them, you know, ridiculously challenging? Probably yeah, exactly. And oftentimes in an unfair way and then end up putting it at the end of the game as kind of an ultimate goal to, to overcome. And we've talked before, especially during like our game of the year cast, that the battle system in Saga Scarlet Grace is like tremendous. It's one of the best turn-based battle systems out there, and I play it a lot. Um, and it's it's one of those things like when you first take on one of these Scarlet Fiend super bosses, like the first time. Uh, let me actually just clarify something really quick. You fight a Scarlet Fiend, and then as, um, if you do, if you're like if you have the conditions right, you, they kind of show up again, even even stronger. And that's the ones I'm talking about are like these powered up Scarlet Fiends. They're, they're called true Scarlet Fiends. And like the first time I took one on, like I got annihilated to the point where I was almost considering like, maybe I just won't bother um, with these, with these bosses. But then like, it's like, you know, let me just try it again. And then you try it again and you start to see something like, oh, I think I see what he's doing here. And you sort of figure it out. Like I need to do this if I want to stay alive. And he, I want to do this if I want to actually damage him in an efficient way. And then you kind of realize I can actually beat this guy and then you do and then you take on the next one and so on it's kind of just it's satisfying to like do that 
Um, and it actually does require, you know, thoughtful planning and strategy to do it sometimes. And I think that's really rewarding. Well, Adam, you've been you've been playing uh, Saga on and well, pretty much every single week that uh, we've talked since the Game of the Year podcast. You've still been playing it, so it's clearly got a lot well, of replay value. Yeah, off and on. Like I've been playing some other games in the meantime, like here and there in between. But it's kind of like my fallback game at the moment when I'm not doing something else. Like I'll just play more of this. Um, so it, it's, a, it's 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 great for that. All right, Saga Scarlet Grace, a really good game, uh, as Adam will attest to. We so we games. gave it. If, if, if you or, don't know, we gave it yeah. our we gave it our game of the year, basically winner last year. So we a lot of us loved it. Yeah, and I gave it a ten out of ten, and I still stand by that. So. Yeah. So James, the last week you've got listed here that you've been playing AI, the Somnium Files, Rhyme, and Utuera Muno. So pick of the litter. Which one do you want to talk about first? I'm going to, well, the one that's the most, uh, I guess, pertinent to the discussion is uh, Utuado de Mono, so I'll start with that. So, if you don't know, we posted a uh, review for the PC ports of uh, Mask of Deception, Mask of Truth, uh, a few days ago. I think it was on, uh, it was on Wednesday, I think it was? That sounds right. right. and I'm just really conflicted about these ports. So I originally played these games on Vita just last year. And I think I've said it before, maybe not in the podcast, but if any of you listening are longtime uh, listeners to the podcast, you might remember the Game of the Year podcast for 2017, where uh, Zach, uh, former staff of the site, brought up these two games. But at the time, he was the only one that had played them. So they kind of fell behind and didn't have much support in the overall discussions. And uh, I've always, like, since I played them last year, I felt bad about that because I owned both of these games back then, but I just hadn't gotten to them. But if I had played them, I would have fought for them probably pretty hard during the uh, game of the year 2017. But, um, yeah, so I came into these PC ports wanting to be able to recommend them to everyone. And to a certain degree, I can still say that they're technically the best versions of the game. But the problem is, is that, yeah, it's got good keyboard and mouse controls. Yeah, it's got key, um, like gamepad rebinding. It even has some things that other PC ports fall behind on in the sense that like so many PC ports just have Xbox buttons and they don't have anything else for any other controllers. And it's a bit I know most people on PC probably use Xbox controllers, but there's a lot, there's a bunch of people that only have a PC and a PS4. And since a PS4 controller can work on PC, they just use that. Um, but anyways, the big thing is, is that even though you can change the output resolution for these ports in the settings, it doesn't actually change the rendering resolution. And as a uh, consequence of that, like, yeah, these are mostly VNs, and they're go- you're going to see, like, 2D artwork that was already kind of stuck at 720p anyway, so, like, increasing the rendering resolution wouldn't actually help with that. But the thing is, is that these games are actually games. Like, there's lengthy visual novel sections, but there are also tactical RPG sections in Mask of Deception, and even more so in Mask of Truth. Like, uh, once you beat either of those games even locked this thing called the dream arena which is a bunch of post-game challenges in the tactical rpg section and whatnot so 
it's not necessarily a problem, the rendering resolution, I mean, it's not necessarily a problem when you're just reading, but once you get into the tactical RPG sections, if you have a monitor that's above 720p, like in my case, my main monitor is 1440p, it just looks blurry, it looks low resolution, and there's no good reason that the port had to be this way. Well, one thing you said, um, and I saw one of the screenshots you picked, was that because of the low resolution, the text is blurry? Yeah, um, I'm not sure if that has to necessarily do with the resolution, but I'm sure since the entire scene is rendered at 720p, it doesn't help. It, but like I, I, you know, I, I, I have a 4K monitor, and I, I saw one of your screenshots, and I went to blow it up, and it's just like, if you're just looking at it immediately, it's like you can still, it's still legible. You can still read it, but it was kind of fuzzy, like fuzzy, fuzzy text. And like being a visual novel, you're going to be reading all the time. It's just like this should be sharper than it is. Yeah, yeah. And it's not even necessarily the fuzziness. It's the fact that the actual letters themselves are a bit oddly proportioned when you blow them up to a larger size. With the that kerning, you mean? Yeah, the kerning. And so that's like the main, like honestly, if, if nothing else, the font needs to be fixed. Like, I think everyone that's played the port agrees that even if they don't think the resolution is necessarily a problem, the font needs to be fixed. But um, now this the other was thing... a, this was a pretty quick turnaround from announced for PC to being to being released, right? Yeah, yeah. they announced it early this month, so that basically had less than three weeks turnaround from announcing it to releasing it which i really don't know what to take away from that yeah. it's just interesting because everyone goes excited oh wow i can finally play this on pc and then you hear your impressions and you're like oh darn you know it's kind of a, a blowback yeah and i'll fully acknowledge that this was a bit weird for me to do but i one thing i thought about like right before my pc like impressions kind of went live was I wonder how the game would look emulated because uh, I'm not sure if you two remember, but like during E3 this last year, I picked up Tears to Tiara 2 like at a retro game camp. And I've been emulating that every now and then on my PC because I made a backup and whatnot. Same engine. It runs in 4K fine because of uh, resolution scale and whatnot. So I was thinking, well, if Tears to Tiara 2 on the same engine can run at a higher resolution than our PCS3, what about Utsuwaru Numono? So I checked, and yeah, the PS3 version emulated runs and looks better than the PC version native. And it's like, if nothing else, that's that, that shouldn't be a thing. Yeah. <laughs> it is always kind of weird when you see like an older game or a game from a generation or two ago will get an up port or resolution bump, and then people will compare to emulated versions. And then obviously people always have their opinion on what looks better. Do you want a pure resolution bump? Do you want any sort of like new new sort of textures or, or filtering or whatever? But in this one, it seems like well, the it's, thing it's is, not it's not a, it's not a matter yeah. of opinion here. You just, you just look at the pure rendering resolution, and there you go. Yeah, it's just like from what I understand, the uh, company that handled the PR for the uh, port had nothing to do with the port itself, like. Aquaplus, the original developers in Japan, handled the actual PC port, which make, which when you think about it, makes a lot of sense why this would be resolution locked, because apparently, and I had no idea about this until I was kind of like going through the weeds to figure out what the deal was with the resolution, but 
The PS4 version of Utsumaru Yumona was also 720p, like the PS3 version when you're not emulating it. Which is so you think it was just weird. a factor of kind of like know-how and expertise? Because it seems like it was just pretty much one-to-one. 720p, 30 on console, moved to PC, and it's just stayed the same. I don't think it's necessarily about know-how, because it's like... People could say, oh, well, if both the PS3 and PS4 versions were one resolution, then maybe it's an engine issue. But then it's like, okay, I'll level with you guys. So my Vita's hacked. And I actually, when I played through Utsuharu Mono, I made backups of my game so I didn't have to put it in the game card slot. It's my copy of the game, but I've been playing it digitally. Well, because of that, I can actually look at the game files, and I noticed that for... The PS3 version, the Vita version, the PC version, the file structure is basically identical. Like, as you're saying, it was based, it was essentially bare minimum port. But what I'm trying to get at here is that the Vita version has a different resolution than 720p. So obviously the engine itself can support different rendering resolutions, like even like different rendering resolutions for the 2D sections and the 3D sections, because the 2D sections in the Vita version are like native resolution for the Vita screen, but the 3D sections are lower resolution, probably closer to PSP resolution because the Vita just can't handle full resolution in those scenes. So it just it does it, kind it, of it remind me of. Yeah. I was going to say it does kind of remind me of when Dark Souls first came to PC, which was several years ago now, so my memory might not be perfect, but. It was resolution locked to, I believe, 720p, 30 FPS, which which matched the consoles, but then obviously was you know you know made worse by a game for Windows Live and things like that. And then yeah. once people started oh, learning, oh, I forgot how to... about games for Windows Live. Yeah, and then when people started learning about how to like mod it to make it render at a higher resolution or play at a higher frame rate, you kind of learned the shortcomings of that. Where I forget if it was one or two or maybe both, but the certain animations would depend on. The, uh, yeah. the frame rate and same thing with uh valkyria chronicles when it came to pc apparently there, there was a weird sort of bug where if you played it at 60 fps you could no longer go up slopes because of some weird way that the uh interactions of the animations uh i'm, I'm pretty the, sure that was fixed. terrain yeah yeah i mean all, all these things all these things were eventually fixed but it's just weird because certain things that you don't have to consider when releasing for fixed hardware now, when you release for a PC, and some people have a 1080 monitor, some people have, you know, 4K, well, some people might have ultra wide nowadays. It, it, there's these things that the engine might support, but I, I think, in my opinion, well, it kind of goes back to, to know how, where it's like, how, yeah. how do we make it so that the output of the game will best use the capabilities of the engine so that we don't run into these issues that unfortunately it seems like Utuero Muno. Yeah. Uh, Usually has. those issues are because of frame rate though and i'm not even talking about frame rate like i do know that yeah, rpc3 right. does let you uncap frame rate in some titles now so i'm curious of seeing what happens if i did that but for a tactical rpg i think like most people can agree that 30 fps even if they wish it could be higher it's like who really cares it's turn-based most of it's a bn and it's not nearly as um jarring as the lower resolution but yeah, I, I just hope that it gets fixed. Like um, just like the other day, the uh, company Shira VN like posted on their Discord like a kind of follow up and basically saying that 
you're going to look into fixing it, but there was like no urgency behind the message. And it sounds like it's kind of leaving the door open, but not saying that they're going to do anything necessarily. They're just saying, hey, we'll look into it. So I hope it gets fixed. But at this point, I'm guessing that if it does get fixed, it's going to be through a fan patch and probably not through the official channels. Unfortunately, there's kind of precedent for that. We look at like the uh, the near port where it says they're going to look at it and then just unfortunately, for whatever reason, we're not privy to, it just never happens. So you, 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 yeah. you just never know whether or not, you know, if you wait on it, whether or not that'll benefit you or not. Yeah. All right. So just yeah. Utuar Muna, uh, I guess, just know going in that it might be a little bit mediocre in terms of the quality of the One port, thing I, the that game. I will say, and this is definitely a tangent, but Steam Remote Play is a thing. And honestly, I think Utuaru Mono might be something that benefits from that. Because if you if you play it on, say, like your phone or a tablet, the lower resolution is going to make the font look a bit better. And it's going to make the uh, lower resolution, well, everything else be less jarring. So if you want to play it, I feel like Remote Play is actually a good use to, well, it's it's a good method of playing the port because it doesn't change anything about the port, but because of the type of game it is, I feel like that you aren't going to be losing anything by streaming it. Right. That the, the hit that you take from any sort of stream latency or, or compression is not going to be as, as noticeable just because of the strength of the port itself. Isn't that high? Yeah. All right. Which isn't necessarily so... a good thing, but yeah. Yeah, it's kind of silver lining on a on a dark cloud. <clears throat> All right, so George, uh, in the last week, you have here that you've been playing Dragon Ball Z Kakarot, which obviously you talked about last week and you had reviewed for us, but now you've been able to sink more time into the end game. Into I believe you were on Namek last time we talked, which I guess if I had to guess at any point, if someone's watching this show, where are they? They're probably on Namek. So uh, what are your <laughs> what are your fuller what are your fuller thoughts on uh, on Dragon Ball Z Kakarot? So when we talked about it last time, I was uh, obviously not far enough into it to have anywhere close to a review. I knew I was enjoying it, uh, but I, I certainly wasn't able to be like, oh, seven, eight, nine. I just knew I still had a lot left to go. Um, and now I've fully completed it, uh, done almost all of the side content, uh, which you can see on our site. There's a few guides for. Um, I really enjoyed it. And th this is something I wanted to say along with my review it's not the sort of thing you you include but i ended up giving it a seven out of ten um the dragon ball fan in me wanted to give it an eight or a nine because it's such a love letter to dragon ball but i had to i had to stand my ground in terms of how it actually plays and some of the mechanics it doesn't quite deliver on and i end up giving it a seven and i think that's a good score um this we're, we're certainly not going to be the first people to have a discussion about review scores but Seven, seven is good, um, and I found that the more I played after the story, the more I enjoyed it. So one of the bigger problems with Dragon Ball Z Kakarot is for someone like me, and pr probably most people who know Dragon Ball, we've seen this story so many times before. Um, I've played probably every single Dragon Ball game that's come out since the original Budokai Tenkaichi, um, so I have, I've, I've seen all the stuff with Freezer, I've seen all the stuff with Cell, I've seen all the stuff with Majin Buu, and 
to, to its credit, Kakarot does it in probably the best way I've seen a Dragon Ball game handle it, because it includes everything. So if you really want to sit through it, you, you'll have an amazing time. But you still have to go through that story. And in this case, it's 40, 30 to 40 hours to get through, uh, which is a big ask. Um, I, I, have two, have seen it. I have two questions. First of all, have you played... This, this is kind of an offhand question, but have you played the PlayStation 2 era, like the, the Budokai games, not Tenkaichi, yes, just Budokai. Yes. Okay. Some of those ones were like some of the best, or at least most fun, just regular fighters uh, of that era. Yeah, completely. Um, like Budokai 3 is uh, oh, yeah. up there with one of my favorite Dragon Ball games. Uh, it has, Budokai Tenkaichi. Go on. Uh, I'd say Budokai 3, the original, has like really good music, even though it's the plagiarized stuff. <laughs> Oh um, yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's, it's still that. very good. Like I don't like I almost don't I mean I do care, but it's just like it's 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 got really nice music. Um, I remember when they released the HD collection of that cuz they had to change it all. I, yeah. I was, uh, yeah, they had to change it everything cuz it was it was just too controversial, I guess. Um yep. Uh, you had a second question as well. Okay, so my second question was just more practical here. Like so what do you do after like you've beaten Kid Boo? And like, what what is there left to like do in the game as you're doing post game stuff? Like, I'm I don't, I'm trying to like paint a picture for you. Like, what are you actually doing? So so this is where I was most surprised. Um, there's actually so much to do. There, there's loads of side missions, um, and they're not all amazing. Like a lot of them are go here, talk to this person, beat up a few robots, come back, but. They also, a lot of them also feature original Dragon Ball characters and characters that have just been sidelined. Um, so for me, who's a big fan, uh, that was really cool. Like the characters like Launch, um, Arely, j- just lo- just loads of them. Uh, so you get the side missions, and then my favorite part of it, and th- this is something we discussed earlier about it with RPGs, is there's all these like optional challenging bosses called, um, I think they're called villainous enemies. Uh, and you fight them, and they're powered up. Uh, but by that point in the game, I was when I finished the game, I was about level seventy-two. Uh, most of them are like level forty, level fifty. So you go around doing them, and they're going down in like a couple of hits. And it, it made me laugh at first. I was like, "Oh, well, this isn't this isn't challenging at all." But it also felt very Dragon Ball, like to have my characters all face off, and the the enemies are giving it like giving it the big and like, oh yeah, we're going to beat you. And then you literally just hit them once and they go flying. And it's like, great. <laughs> and then even further on from that, they actually, there's like level 85. Um, there's even like some a level 100 enemies. And they're actually really challenging. Like you have to, you have to really like grind to get to a good level to beat them. And I, I thought that was really cool. Um, and then like the biggest bit of content I can think of is um, there's a secret boss. Uh, I don't know. Should, uh, am I able to spoil it because it, it's you know it's been a week or so? Well, I will say I don't right. know who it is. I don't. <laughs> if it's the boss, I feel I like you or... can. I was well, going to guess say, it's I like it's Jerry okay or to just, just just go ahead and spoil it. All right, so here's spoiler warning. If you're worried about the Kakarot secret boss, jump ahead a few minutes. All right, secret boss is who, George? Okay, so uh, people who are familiar with Xenoverse. Um, and I think it's Dragon Ball Heroes, they will know about the time patrollers and the enemies for the time patrollers. Uh, and the big bad from that, uh, well, the big bads, Mira and Toa, they they make a little cameo after doing the first couple of villainous enemies. And then once you've done them all, you can go fight uh, Mira, I think, and he's level 100. 
Uh, he's really, really, really challenging, but it's just really cool to see that sort of thing in there, especially since Kakarot has like sticks so rigidly to the canon story of Dragon Ball. To see them include something that's like a bit out there, it, that that was a cool moment for me. I'm just gonna say I have no idea, no idea who this is. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's some people who, as soon as they see Xenoverse or Heroes, like I guess, I guess just in the larger uh, scope, if they see it's not canon, they're like, well, I'm not gonna be interested in this. So that brings me to a follow-up question. Do you think they could, should, or would extend this sort of format of game into Dragon Ball GT or Super or even backwards to the original? Like, do you think there's any sort of avenue there for that? This is my first thought. Um, pro probably when I got to the Cell Saga and I was like, okay, great. I'm going to have to do all the training and have to go up against Cell Jr. And da -da -da. I thought it'd actually be fantastic if they just started at the start of Super. So do all the, even though, again, the story of Beerus and Whis is now quite well known as well. Like, we haven't had a full game based on that. So just start there, go all the way up to the Tournament of Power. And in this RPG style, that would be incredible. I'm really And obviously that people have their own, uh, people have their own opinions about whether or not GT or Super, you know, some people are very divisive on both those series. But I think obviously there's still a big fan base of both where if they're able to adapt it, even if it's not quite as well suited to an adventure RPG like the main story of Z is, I think a lot of people would buy into that. That's just my impression. Yeah, I, I think knowing that there is DLC content upcoming um, and character models have been found in the game files that indicate that it's uh, going to have something to do with Beerus, which... I, I definitely think that's the way they should go. Uh, GT. Oh, I actually did. I actually I really did not know about that. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, so that was recently. Like the game got data mined a bit, um, and they found. I think it was Cooler, uh, Broly, Beerus, and Weiss. And that that's just that's just really cool. I don't know where they'll go with it. Whether they'll just be little optional fights, or if it's full on story content. But the more Dragon Ball, the better, in my eyes. And I have seen people sharing on social media where obviously a couple of years ago when Fighters, Fighter Z, whichever way it is, came out, people were praising Arc System Works for the uh, the faithfulness to the manga and to the anime and the, uh, the style of art and the quality of it. And then this game is CyberConnect 2, which also kind of made their name for themselves with, I believe, some of the Naruto games. I don't know if it was Ultimate, yeah, Ultimate Ninja or some, or some or some other series, but people have been posting a few of the uh, cinematics from Kakarot, basically saying like this stands on its own. It's it's not always the most polished thing, but some of them like the, I'm. You already know where I'm going with this. There's a video clip of the Raccoon fight where it's like this looks amazing. This yeah, it's so cool to see that animated in, in a in a modern style and still kind of hold on to exactly what made it so impactful in the first place. So it looks like it's got a whole lot of like love and care behind it and a, and a lot for for dragon ball fans to really kind of be excited about to see it you know adapted in this new way with you know a modern engine and uh with the full story rpg mechanics which a lot of people you know really hook their hook their teeth into so definitely something oh, oh, that absolutely. i kind of want to try out um well to go on what you're saying about the cutscenes, um all of them are really really well done but there was one in particular um so my brother and I are both really, really big Dragon Ball fans. Uh, we grew up on it. And I was, I was sat there playing it. Uh, and the, it's the bit where Goku and Vegeta fuse into Vegito for the first time against um, Super Buu. And that scene, I was sat there just jaw on the floor. Because even though Dragon Ball Fighters has kind of, kind of perfected 
like replicating the Dragon Ball look. I was I was I wasn't really expecting much from Kakarot to be able to do more than that, but it was just so stylish. Like I, I was watching it, like I, I could just watch a whole film based on this this animated style. It, it, it's incredible. And even though you opened up by saying that, yeah, you gave it a seven, blah, 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 you did in your review, in the, in the written words part of the review, which is part of the review, uh, you talk about how it really kind of, there was that connection about being a fan of the series and how much love and care was put into it and how, yeah, you could you could criticize certain mechanical elements or certain polish or whatever, but as, as a love letter to Dragon Ball, it's a 10 out of 10 or very close. Yeah, exactly. Um, my my score of seven was more indicative of the things that the gameplay didn't do quite right. So I don't think it quite lives up to the RPG mechanics it wants to. But I, I still think it's a perfectly fun game. Like I I, I sat there and I, there wasn't a point where I wanted to turn it off. And I keep revisiting it a little bit now and then. Um, but as a Dragon Ball fan game, uh, amazing. Maybe even better than and, Fighters and, uh, for fan service. And I haven't played a Dragon Ball game in a while. I think the last one I played was Birth Limit, which was like a launch game for oh, the Xbox 360. And like, I'm kind of sitting here, like hovering over the purchase button on Steam. Like, maybe I'll try this. I haven't yet. Yeah, but I would absolutely recommend it. it. All right. It's an RPG, so I have no excuse, right? Exactly. Uh, all right. So what I've been playing over the last week has just been more Iceborne just because there's so much to do in that game. Uh, the PC version of Iceborne so it just only came out earlier this month so obviously I've been playing a lot of I guess catch-up which is kind of thematically appropriate because uh, earlier this week we did see from Capcom a new roadmap for the game for 2020 and one big component of that roadmap was how they're going to keep updating the game throughout the year even past june so you know they've got months of stuff kind of planned out for this so i think when it first came out people didn't really think of monster hunter like a, a games as a service game but it kind of is kind of leaning in that direction but it seems to be done in a way where i don't think anyone minds or there's really no negative stigma attached to it because i'm looking at these updates out of these roadmaps that were posted and i'm like oh gee oh boy i'm looking forward to all this maybe, maybe i'm just in too deep i'm a boiled frog but uh i've been well, knee deep in the uh go ahead james well if you're a boiled frog then what's that make me uh, <laughs> you're you're yeah. frog soup but uh yeah. um so one thing that is very uh interesting about this roadmap <clears throat> is how they're talking about how by may uh is it may yeah, by May, the by PC and console version. Oh, yeah, by late April. Title update 3.5. Uh, they're going to be synced, which has never happened yet because I, I looked back at the updates for the base game, and I thought for some reason I had the inclination that the PC version eventually did get caught up. But it, it never did, really did at the very end. Like, so um, what I looked, what uh, I saw was... Sorry, uh, what I saw was that the last update to the main game before Iceborne was Arc Tempered Nergigante, uh, which came out in April for consoles of 2019, but came out in June for uh, PC. So I guess between June and Iceborne release, you could call them synced because they both had that last Arc Tempered <coughs> Nergigante update. And then it was kind of like, I don't want to say a low blow, that's too dramatic, but it was kind of a bummer that then all of a sudden we're back to an, uh, a five month delta between the two versions. So, and then this has actually kind of been relevant because 
and people in our, the RPG site Discord have been setting up a few hunts in our Monster Hunter channel. But nowadays, it's like, are you a console or a PC? Are you a console or a PC? And, you know, it's still, even if they are synced or will be synced, they're still two separate pools, which, of course, you know, ends up pushing the question, will Monster Hunter, if it... Will it ever be cross-save, cross-play? You might say it's I, not possible. Maybe it is, but it's certainly something we can hope for. I hope that once <clears throat> things get synced, that eventually we get cross-play. Because what I think is going to happen is that, and this is kind of going a bit further on to what you wanted to talk about, I think that we're going to keep getting Monster Hunter World support for at least another year. Because... It's obvious that the Monster Hunter team is, well, the game sold 15 million copies. They're all obviously working on the follow-up, but that's going to be next-gen. And I don't think it's going to be at the beginning of next-gen. It's probably no going to be like 2021 or 2022. Yeah, I'd agree. And, and I think until then, it's going to make sense for them to continue supporting it because both Xbox and PlayStation are going to have backwards compatibility. I, I, I could see it. The thing is, when, when it comes to games being cross-gen there sometimes it's just quite obvious where it's going to happen or not um but with monster Hunter, i don't know why it's just my gut feeling is that we won't see it for a, for a while now a potential yeah. cross-gen i don't know why that is i just, I just look at it and i'm like it, it feels very separate obviously i'd love for that to happen uh, the more people who can play together the merrier but I, I personally would be surprised to see it added yeah it is one of those things that kind of seems like it might be out of scope though i feel like the more and more it feels like there's two large player bases for this series that the more and more I think there's going to be motivation to do that. All right. Also announced earlier this week was that Rune Factory Special is going to be released in late February for Nintendo Switch. February 25 in North America, February 28 in Europe. So, James, I think this is a series that you know a lot about that I honestly don't. So how do you feel about Rune Factory coming to the Switch? Well, we knew it was coming to Switch for a while, and the thing that was confusing to me, and I know some other people, is that actually when the uh, Japanese version of this came out, and people, like, because the Switch is hacked open and everything, people looked into the files, and it was already mostly translated. So people were wondering why it was taking so long for it to come out in the West. Well, um, XSeed actually posted a localization blog, which is something they tend to do. It's been a while since they posted one, I think, though. And basically explain that it's a lot of work um, bringing even like just the same translation from the 3DS to the Switch, especially if you had to uh, kind of do some little hacks to make the text look decent on uh, 3DS, like stuff like line breaks and whatnot. And especially if the method of which of like and how text is actually inserted is like different. So it's like the Three main points is is that um, there's more text that they had to translate because of new content. They had to do an extra editing pass to make sure that things looked right on Switch, like to get rid of hyphens for line breaks and whatnot that aren't necessary anymore. And also, apparently, and this is the first I've heard about it, but the game also has a French and German translation now, they which is... They just announced that. When they announced yeah. the release date, they announced two things. They announced that it has German and French, so that, of course, takes time to localize that. Yeah. And also, it does have Japanese voices now, too. So now you have the choice yeah. between English and Japanese. But yeah, now, really interesting. The, uh... I believe the Spanish, German, and French, or was it Spanish? But none of those were mentioned in X Seeds 
information only in Marvelous for Europe, which I guess makes sense. But uh, uh, I wonder if that on makes- this localization blog uh, that blog on this localization blog they mention the French and German. That's on Exit side. So oh, okay. I don't think so they mentioned like- uh, Spanish. Is there a Spanish? It's not Spanish. Just French yeah. and German. Right. Ignore me. So, but this game originally came out for the 3DS a few years ago. Uh, is that correct? 2013. Was it was DS. It was. No, it started life as a DS game, and if you've played it on 3DS, it makes sense why, because a lot of the, uh, like the character models are probably closer to the Rune Factory three character models. But yeah, that's neither here nor there. Any further thoughts on Rune Factory or? Well, it was actually so. It's actually kind of a weird history because. As soon as Rune Factory 4 released on 3DS in Japan, so this is like 2013, the developer Neverland went bankrupt in Japan. And that was, I believe, before it even was localized. And then when Xseed localized it to the to the West, to, to North America, I forget exactly who it was at that point, but it was announced for a European release too. And then at one point, the European release of the 3DS game was canceled outright. Like, you don't see that very often where a game is just canceled. But then it was uncanceled when Exceed... So Exceed is a North American publisher. They don't do this too often, but what they were able to do was release it in Europe as a digital title. So it did come out in Europe, but kind of after it was canceled. Um, And then... So, okay, now Neverland is bankrupt, the developer, but Marvelous, who is sort of their their like parent company. I don't know if that's the right, I don't know if they're the actual parent company, but they basically took the staff of Neverland that was laid off in and it, you know, it took a while, but they finally announced that they're actually coming out with the Rune Factory 5. They announced that last year. Um, and I maybe underestimated how popular this series was in terms of like, people are really excited for Rune Factory 5, even though we haven't really seen much of it at all. Just the fact that yeah. it exists and it's coming to Switch um, in Japan this year, supposedly. So um it's just kind of a it's just kind of this fun weird history of this of this series now that is it looked like it was dead in the water for a while but it's not it's coming so it's kind of cool to see it come back first with this um with this remake maybe get test the waters a bit see how people like it kind of it's been seven years since this game released um so it's been a while and it's a re-release and then there's going to be another game shortly here so what James was talking about earlier about the translation efforts, not not just translation, but re, re-editing so that it fits from 3DS to Switch, it does make me think about how there's these other factors that this, this blog at XSeed's website kind of go into that some people might, they, they might not discount it intentionally, but they don't initially consider it. Like one thing that yeah. I saw that Colin was talking about was how in Tokyo Mirage Sessions, how the battle chirps, the the, the dialogue that occurs within battle still isn't subtitled, uh, which was a weakness of the original release. But the problem there is, is that there was never intended to be text on the screen at that point. So the localizers kind of have their hands tied. They just, they, there's nothing they can do, even if they took the, the words and translated them. So it seems like some, some game projects these days will kind of consider that ahead of time and they know it's a global release and they'll, they'll, factor in that they have to have subtitles at certain places or the length of text has to be so many characters to fit on the screen at one time or whatever but not every game has the same level of preparedness for that so sometimes 
you have to have different degrees of how much this has to be edited and, and re-edited just so everything works and fits together and gets on the screen and you don't have those hyphens or you have subtitles where you need them where in the original language you might not have needed them. So it's, Let's it's not interesting even get to into, yeah. Go ahead and get Let's into not what? Even get into games that uh, have vertical text in Japanese. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't see that much these days, probably for good reason, but yeah. Um, so Ring Factor yeah. 4 Special coming out in late February, and it seems like a lot of people are excited about it. It's not a series that I'm super familiar with, but it seems like you guys have been passionate about it, and when we shared it on our Twitter account, lots of people shared it around. People are excited to revisit this. So uh, one mean, of the few releasing games in out. February. Yeah. I mean, Harvest Moon, Story of Seasons, that sort of stuff's popular. Like, just the other day, we got the news that... Uh, stardew valley had sold 10 million copies worldwide so obviously Oof. there's a lot of interest in this particular type of game even though rune factory is a little bit different but and stardew valley just had like a gigantic update too yeah it is kind of interesting when you see like you think of a game like fire emblem how it was a massive success three houses i mean and it was still under three million which is still great but then you compare three million to ten million or you compare that to like a rockstar game which is up above 20 30 million it's just crazy how there's like these different scales of what you know titles are expected to do and how overperforming relative there to their expectations can look very different it, depending on the scope it is of the kind of it is audience. kind of amusing in places like i like there's that infamous tomb raider sales number the original not the original but the the remake tomb raider like yeah. the reboot like it sold like four or five million and that was a disappointment to because sorry because they wanted eight million if i remember yeah right. so it's just kind of all these it's just like obviously it has to do with money spent and expectations and things like that but it's it's, it's funny in a way all right, so for the last topic of the day, it's a big one. Well, it's actually kind of two parts of a topic, but we're going to talk about Kingdom Hearts. Woo! How do we feel about Kingdom Hearts? Yeah. All right, so <laughs> so let, let, let's ease into this because there's a lot to talk about here. So obviously there's kind of two topics that have come up in the last week. Obviously the Remind DLC for Kingdom Hearts 3 just recently released, and a lot of people have been playing through that and trying their hands against a common theme, Super Bosses. But also we got news about the next Kingdom Hearts game. That's, I'm not giving that more more gravitas than Yay. it might need. So <laughs> let me let me let me start that here. So Square Enix reveals a new Kingdom Hearts experience for mobile devices, tentatively titled Project Xehanort. It is a mobile game for Android and iOS that goes to answer the question: Why did he become the Seeker of Darkness? So George, Kingdom Hearts fanboy over here, how do you feel about Project Xehanort? Uh, I. I think it's a story worth exploring, um, but Kingdom Hearts 3 should have done that uh, for a start. <laughs> and that's, a, that's a very good the, opening. The, the mobile game uh, Union Cross, I like. Oh god, I, I like some of the things it does, but but gameplay wise, it's it's just not fun, and it's even more convoluted than uh, some of the stuff we've seen in Kingdom Hearts in the past. Like, I, I mean, give me anything Kingdom Hearts, and I will play it inevitably, but. When I saw this, I didn't go, woohoo! I was just like, yeah, okay, I'll give it a go, I guess. So from the outside looking in, I played all of the, I guess, mainline Kingdom Hearts. By mainline, I mean like all the portable stuff too, just not the mobile game. It almost feels like, my impression is that it feels like an, an obligation or a chore or a requirement. I don't think I've ever seen people share images or, or gameplay from that game 
from a viewpoint of legitimately like being engrossed in it it, al- it almost just seems kind of like what you have to play in order to totally enjoy yeah that's a good way to put it so you look at project xehanor and you're wonder like is this just going to be homework is this going to be something that's actually going to extend because i kind of felt like kingdom hearts 3 wrapped up what it needed to with xehanor and i was like nope we're going back we're discussing things that when I read the tagline, why did he become a seeker of darkness? I'm asking myself, do we, does this question really need to be answered? Like, is there, is there a lot you can do here that's really compelling? I'm not sure. Well, because I, I, I didn't feel like Kingdom Hearts 3 did, I, again, possible spoilers, but it kind of did a bait and switch with young, with Xehanort being like, oh, he wanted darkness to like re, re, make the world reborn so it can be better. And it's like, that was never specified in the other games it's so I, i'm interested to see if that builds upon it and i think he is an interesting character um but i just wish they weren't doing it in a mobile format and i and to, to go on a tangent here i hate the idea of guessing the name because uh, i i would yeah good luck a, a diehard fan I, I i would i've got it tattooed on my skin i've got every version of each game but i was sat there for a good 10 minutes staring at that tweet Count, counting out like I, I even looked up some of his quotes to see if there was something that kind of matched and I, I just could not think of anything and that, that just that just riles me i don't see the point for that much of me being maybe they actually didn't know the title and were looking for ideas <laughs> <laughs> it yeah. is interesting though to see like how i don't know if retcon's the right word but they did kind of throw in that like here's how we're justifying zayn art's uh stance so that I guess I should kind of preamble here and say that there, we're going to talk about spoilers for Kingdom Hearts throughout the rest of this cast. So because we're going to be talking about Remind, we're going to be talking about Xehanort, we're going to be talking about Three. So I don't think we're going to overtly just try to specifically talk and disclose everything, but we're going to we're going to talk openly. So spoilers will, will probably come out. But when when Kingdom Hearts Three kind of went to say like, here's how we're justifying and substantiating Xehanort's uh, stance, that now this feels like almost a continuation of that where it's like you know he was the villain but here's why you should be sympathetic to him it's just kind of interesting so i I sort of felt like him wanting darkness was just because he wanted darkness because it was a powerful force like look look back at riku in well i guess riku's a little bit different but it, it didn't need to be uh darkness to be good it could have just been darkness to be darkness like even with Vanitas, a character who says in Kingdom Hearts 3, I am darkness, they're now, again, spoilers for a mind, kind of, they're now sort of twisting on that and making him like almost irredeemable. I think they're trying to. Um, so, there's uh, <laughs> just too much to talk about. Right. So, well, maybe we'll see now that this, this game is going to be obviously a few years more advanced, if that's the right word, than union cross maybe it'll actually have like compelling almost console like or at least like the portable game gameplay uh maybe maybe it won't feel so much like homework but obviously going the other direction instead of going backwards to project xehanort we've got the dlc that released in the last couple days we've got remind now i have not played this i intend to because i do play all of the quote-unquote mainline console portable kingdom hearts games but both adam and george have put in time early this weekend and late last week basically blitzing out remind so adam remind uh how good is it i guess i'll put it that way well it's kind of two different parts well three different parts really 
So when you load up Remind, the first thing you are met with is about a 45 minutes of cutscenes. And to be honest, I feel like it's not very necessary. Um, there's not, to be honest, there's not a whole lot to spoil here. So I'm not going to be careful tiptoeing around spoilers for this part um, of Remind. The very, very end of Remind, maybe we probably won't go too much into because that's kind of the tease, right? So that's the thing we won't talk about. But like when you start up Remind, you get a couple of cutscenes. Like for example, there is a cutscene. So this is a minor spoiler where you see that young Xehanort met the the Lost Master, the um, the animated one, the one voiced by Ray Chase, and this happened like 75 years ago. And it, it goes a little bit more into that discussion. And it sort of is basically like Xehanort, young Xehanort kind of learning about the world and partially deciding what he wants to do. And that's kind of what George is getting at, kind of building his character. Um, and then there's um, some scenes where we it basically starts showing the last world of the, of the original, of Kingdom Hearts 3, the Keyblade Graveyard part of the game. And it, we see like some like a different perspective of it. We see Xehanort and his cronies kind of talking about it from their perspective. It doesn't add a whole lot at that point, um, but kind of just from their perspective in a way of what they're planning to do. And then we get to the point where Sora has to save Kyrie, and that that was sort of left out in the original game where we saw that Kyrie was captured, and then we 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 right away see that she's back. So it's like okay, well something happened there. We don't know what. Um, and what they basically do, and this is where the title Remind comes into play, I guess, is that Sora has to basically revisit that last world of the game, that last stretch of the game. And you're, you kind of go through that whole stretch of the game, only Sora from the future is basically time traveling himself into the past versions of the, of the different Guardians of Light. And basically, <laughs> kind of re- yes, this, I, this is true. This is what it is. And it sounds stupid because it is kind of stupid. <laughs> and he basically has to revisit these fights and re-experience these fights from like their perspective in a way. And it's actually kind of tedious because once you get to this point of the of the DLC, which is sort of like the first part of it, um, you basically have to redo that world. All those boss fights, all those cutscenes, just with some slight differences here and there, where you see like some slightly extended scenes or slightly different angles of scenes. And it's actually I found it really tedious because it's sort of like I'm watching a cutscene. It's like I've already seen this before. I really want to skip this scene because I've already seen it, but I don't. But I don't want to skip the scene because there might be some small addendum. That, know, that is ex- ex- now. Ex- so my it, experience. And but like about like eighty percent of it is the same. It's stuff you've already seen, so it's kind of, it's really tedious in that regard. It's like oh, it's it's the scene where 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 Terra Zoranoit, Terra Zaynart comes back. You see Aqua and Ven. They're basically like, oh no, Terra, we have to save you. Blah blah blah. And then you even see the scene where like Donald casts Zeta Flare again. It's like, okay, I guess that was cool. I get to see that again. Um, and you see like a slight addendum to that with through like Aqua's perspective, but it's it's not really that substantial in my opinion. That part, like, it, it almost feels like a director's cut in a way. Like, it's, it's kind of just extended version of the scene, you know, like an, like an extended edition Lord of the Rings movie or something. But you know. So- and there's a lot of that. That's just one example, but there's a lot of that. And you, there's even the part where you go to the uh, the labyrinth area. I forget what it's called. It's like Skein of Severance, and you redo that part again. And again, in those fights, you see like some slightly different perspectives on scenes. Like for example, uh, another example, you see uh, 
uh, Axel and uh, who is he with? Kyrie. Kyrie and Shield, and he, they're fighting against Science. Yeah, and you see, you basically see um, a little bit more of that. Okay, uh, let me just say one more positive thing, and then I'll switch it over to George here. There, are, there, some of it is like nice fan service in a way, where in the fight against um, Syx or Isa, uh, you you have you're you're playing as Roxas for a bit. So that's actually a point where it's like, but this is kind of what it is. It, it's before Sora joins. It's before Sora shows up, like in the main game. It kind of shows you what they were fighting about before Sora was there, and you get to play as Roxas for a bit. So that's cool because you didn't you didn't get to play as him, you know, in the main game, and you're fighting Saix and Shion, and like you're fl- you're playing as Roxas, and he's got a different move set, double dash thing, um, going on, and he, uh, his reversal thing that he can do. So it plays a little different. So that's kind of cool. Um, and then like they have their own little like uh, reaction command where you do this combination attack. Um, but with Axel and Shion and Roxas versus Saix, it's like okay, that's kind of nice. It's kind of it's like fan service bullshit stuff, but it's nice. Um, but that's basically what most of the first part of Remind is. It's sort of like revisiting the last world of the game with some slight addendums and twists here and there. I I'm gonna have a to to be uh, completely clear. I'm gonna be reviewing it for the site. Um, so a lot of this, I haven't finished uh, my review, and I haven't quite finished. I'm on the limit cut boss battles, uh, and near the end of them, but I'm I'm not going to finish my review until I've fully done everything because I want to give it the the best shot. Uh, I'm a lot more positive on it, but I I do completely agree with with everything Adam said there. Uh, I think it was a bad way of handling it to not indicate that some cutscenes haven't changed because. I, I was sat through all of them, like, oh, well, maybe maybe one small bit will change, and then you realize that it's not. And then you're like, okay, great, so I'm just going to do this again. And then there were some times where you'd expect to play as a character, so you can choose between some. So you get Sora and Riku. Um, you can be Sora or Aqua, uh, Sora or Roxas. And then there's one where it's uh, you're fighting with Mickey. So I was there like, oh, great, maybe Mickey's a playable character. And he's like, no, you have to do this as Sora again. Um, and it's just the exact same fight with no no additional anything into that bit. And I'm like, why not just not have that be an option? Like, why not just skip that fight? Um, but the stuff that they have added, the little glimpses of story stuff, uh, is really good, I think. So it answers a lot of questions that Kingdom Hearts 3 raised. But I, I'm also sat here thinking, have they done this in a way so that they left it unanswered in the main game to answer it with DLC, or was it just so badly explained in the main game that they have to answer it with DLC? Well, I don't, I don't, like... What did they answer? They didn't really answer anything. It's just like some slight changes. <laughs> well, 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 it's like little moments um, where, uh, like, so with Sora and Roxas, for example, you see that they have a conversation. They make this plan to attack so they can get the sigil back. And it, it's just like little stuff like that where they'll delve a little bit deeper and you'll be like oh, okay so that led up to that um you you, you made an, you said an example earlier oh uh when it was uh aqua and ventus versus terra terra xenor and vanitas and it's like oh they had this conversation and fight before sora came up it's, it's little stuff like that yeah. that i did enjoy but it i don't know it's not so you don't have to specify but... this but do they follow up on where zenmis is talking to 
uh, Larxene, Demix, Gambler dude? Like, do they follow up on that? Not no. really. The, the so like, is that still kind of an open-ended thing? A little bit? I know yeah, I know a lot of that ties into the Union Cross stuff, where you, you understand what's Yeah, so basically, from what I understand, I'm actually, like, thinking out loud here. They basically sort of said that um, Luke Sword, Demix, and a few others of the of those bad guys, they kind of tease, like, why were you made part of Organization 13? And it's like, hmm, we don't know. Like, they're not telling us. Because uh, they weren't... They weren't part of uh, Ansem's research team, and they weren't um, like former Keyblade, or maybe they were former Keyblade. This is where it gets into the Union Cross stuff. It's like I don't know, but <laughs> there's there's like that handful of like number like nine through eleven or something where those characters it sort of tease like they have more to them than we know, but they didn't they don't they don't really go into that. <laughs> you know what they're really doing though? It's it's just a big tease for Project Demix. Um, can you can you guess the name of Project Demix? Project, Project Demix. Collected. Oh, <laughs> Demix time. Uh, and apparently, I've been saying Luxord wrong the whole the whole of my life. It, it's like oh, Luxord. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just, I, I sat there. That's the first thing that made me go, okay. Um, well, I remember when the uh, when the Game Boy Advance game came out, my little dumb. 10 year old self, however old was, was saying Marluxia instead of Marluxia. Oh, yeah. And I always thought he yeah, was I real cool. Was but as well. but uh, it's kind of interesting how he kind of got, like, he was this big bad for a game, but now he's just kind of like one of the crowd sort of thing. But I guess it all ties well, back to, again, those four those four members. How well, they... they sort of do call back to that in a way where. So, like, I guess this is the, this is what the DLC is going for. It's like these little tiny things. So in the fight where you're, where Axel is there, Xemnas is there for a little bit, and Xemnas says stuff like, "You have betrayed me, you know, many, many times by now," and that's sort of calling back to um, the Game Boy Advance game, where Axel is kind of this wild card. He's he went there, to he went to Castle Oblivion to basically stop Marluxia and Larxene at that point because they were the traitors, but then he, then he kind of like betrays everyone in that game. And then he betrays everyone again in Kingdom Hearts 2 because he basically saves um, Kyrie, and so it's like kind of like stuff like that, um, bringing to a head. It, like it doesn't add anything, but it's um, it's like referencing earlier stuff. So, so we can sort of tentatively agree that the replayed sections, besides being able to play as these new characters, which is really cool, um, they're sort of a waste of time. Okay, I, so it's... you'll probably agree with me on this part. So after you kind of replay some of this stuff, then you go into like, um, this is still what I would consider the first part of the DLC. You go into like, um, when you get to like the where the game is at, it's going to the very end point of the game um, where Sora is about to take on Xehanort, the, the, the camera shifts back to the other Keyblade wielders who are still in the Keyblade graveyard. At that point in the game, they're holding back Kingdom Hearts, kind of, you know, just like, you have to stay here as part of the story. You you stay here, and you're supposed to, like, just make it possible that Sora can do what he needs to do. And then in the main game, you don't really get to see what they do. They just, they're just there. They just have to stay behind, because of course they do, because Sora's the main character. He's the one that gets to not stay behind. But then they have to fight a bunch of, like, the Xehanort clones, and that's a new thing. And then you basically are led up to this really big bullshit fan service aerial keyblade battle <laughs> and 
And like, it's so stupid, but it is the sort of thing that like, I feel like Kingdom Hearts fans will love because it's all these characters working together um, to fight a bunch of um, Xehanort clones. And it's really stupid. It's really anime and it's really uh, like over the top, but it is oh, like, love- yeah, I could see why you love it. I, I actually had a too. <laughs> Basically, it's like all nine of these characters, however many there are, all fighting a bunch of Xehanort clones and like a big QTE type thing. Um, and there's a lot of like little fan service dialogue things there and reaction commands. Like for example, there's a little thing where, and we'll, I'm going to go ahead and spoil some of this. Even um, uh, there's the thing where Riku and Terra work together for a little reaction command, and of course they're connected um, from the, in the lore. There's a part where Ven and Roxas are fighting next to each other, and of course they look identical for reasons in the lore. And they even say something like, "You're Roxas, right?" you're not, uh, you're pretty good. And he's like, yeah, well, you're not bad yourself. And it's just stuff like that. You know, you, you, these characters have never met, met, never been together, never worked together before. And it's just now they are. Um, you have Aqua and Shion and Mickey doing like the defensive stuff with their reflect magic. And it's really stupid, but it's cool, you know, in a stupid yeah, way. So I, I will <laughs> say that I do, um, I do think that I remember when the Kingdom Hearts 3 came out a year ago, I believe today, uh, in Japan, anyways, where people said that they wished Roxas and Ven had more interaction because they really don't in the base okay. game. They just kind of. So, okay, George, Adam calls his opinion so far can be boiled down to tedious anime bullshit. I want to hear your honest opinion. So, because obviously it's a bit different. Uh, so th- that bit is. Uh... Adam's completely right that it is stupid, but it, I, I had a grin on my face the whole time. The, li- the little interactions, because they don't happen in the main game, because you that uh, Ven and Roxas just look at each other once, and it's not acknowledged that they look identical. To have them talk is what I wanted from Kingdom Hearts 3 the whole time. Even if it's one bit of dialogue, it's just cool. Um, the gameplay was, you know, it was literally just pressing two buttons, so it's not great there, and I'd much rather they were playable in a bigger capacity, but it's cool. I, I I did really like it. And from that point on, the DLC actually does have more interesting things to talk about. Um, well, if you ignore the whole Mickey walk slowly against uh, a bunch of Xehanorts, that, that was kind of annoying. Yeah, the, the, it gives Mickey like a big shonen hero moment here. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it it was cool, but like again, gameplay it's very wise, dramatic. It yeah. <laughs> I will uh, be honest. I'm hearing you two talk about this, and I'm sitting here being like, "Oh boy, I gotta get this," just because I want to. I want to <laughs> see this. Yes, I, I want to experience so this and have a grin on my face so like, the whole time. So, like the first part of the DLC, I think, is like actually bad and actually kind of stupid the way it's set up. But this part is like stupid, but kind of like a fun stupid. Um, well, well, then you move on to uh, Scarlet Ad, Ad Kylan, and I was initially like, "Oh, this is really cool," but then I was like, "Well, this is just kind of like a." big empty space where you're just going to fight a, a few more heartless and I was like considering how they teased it yeah there's this massive area that you can walk around and look around but there's not really anything to see or do yeah. um, so that was a, a bit of a waste for me again uh, and then you get on to the final battle uh, if I'm not missing anything out I think that then moves on well, to you do, you do a couple of puzzles and it's uh, whatever uh, and then you get to play as Kyrie, and I I'm not a huge Kyrie fan um but playing as her, I, I was loving it. I was like, "This, this is fantastic." I would. What, have what to difficulty take... did you play this on? Uh, standard. Okay, so I was playing on critical, and oh. um, oh, show off. 
Well, no, the thing is, the thing is, it's like so. The final battle of this part of the DLC, which I still consider, um, I, I separate the DLC into three sections, and this is still the first section. It's like the remind story, and the final battle of this DLC is you're fighting Xehanort or like a, a shadow of Xehanort or whatever again, and it's Sora and Kyrie versus Xehanort, and it's like the first time that Kyrie is like a party member in the series. So that's cool. It's like, finally. And you can also choose to play as her. But the thing is, like, playing on critical, like, my Sora has, like, Ultima weapon. He's powered up in level 99 or whatever. And Kyrie, like, in comparison, is kind of wimpy. So, like, if you choose to play as Kyrie, because that's the cool thing to do, because you've never been able to play with her before, you're basically handicapping yourself because she's not nearly as good as Sora. Because she's, yeah, like, she's, she's just got, like, standard stats and whatnot that you never had any control over, where Sora's all powered up from what you've done in the main game. So I did play as Kyrie for a bit just to like check her out, check out her, her shot lock and things like that. Um, and it's like, okay, this is nice. But then I died because I go, well, she's not as good. And then they're like, yeah, I'm just going to play as Sora and beat him up. So that, that, That's a general problem uh, with the DLC. But yeah. I, I, I wouldn't call it a problem, but the, the fact that if you choose to play as any of the other characters, uh, they're just underleveled. So my Sora is a nine. Um, so I was taking enemies out easily. Um, and I think it would have been much better if they just set it as a like maybe just keep Sora level 50 for the DLC yeah. um, keep it consistent because when you're playing as Kyrie on standard uh, she she was really fun she had a really cool moveset and I would happily take a, a Kingdom Hearts game with just her as a playable character um, and also was... just, just a quick callback like the part the time you are to play as Roxas in the in the earlier part like I, that part was actually one of the more difficult parts of the DLC because Roxas is wimpy compared to Sora so like you said it's kind of like this carry it's it's kind of this common theme especially on the harder difficulty whereas if you choose to play as the other characters they're just not as good so you kind of have to you, you have to learn them and it's 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 trickier which um, is so weird because in the in the actual story fight originally roxas could literally not be uh beaten he he can't die when you're fighting against Syax. um yeah. originally i found it quite hard to play as him as well i, I was near low health i was like what's going on um so i see what you mean bunch. Okay, so after that, then it leads back to the, like the normal ending of the game, and you, you even see like the final scene again with Zigbar, like you see all that again. Um, so that hasn't really—I don't think that changed at all. You know, and part of me is like, part of this is memory. Like, was this scene any different before? And I don't think it, it was. was. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then you get to what I call the second part of the DLC. So this is less story focused and more gameplay focused. So the second part of the DLC in Remind, after you finish the first story part, is that it's a year later. So this is um, Riku. You see a couple of small, like, little story tidbits. For example, uh, uh, Ven, Terra, and Aqua, they shows them going into the to the dark world. They're looking for... Everyone's looking for Sora at this point, because Sora has disappeared. So they go into the dark world to look for him. They say that, like, Roxas and uh, Xion, I think, are are looking for him as well. So basically everyone's just off on their own looking for Sora. Riku goes to Radiant Garden, and this is where the Final Fantasy characters come in. I actually had forgotten at this point, like, oh yeah, they told us they were coming back, and this is where. Um, you see uh, Yuffie, Aerith, uh, Sid, and Leon, and Squall, or Squall, whatever they call him now. Um, and basically they're, they're setting up a computer to try to analyze, they're trying to find Sora still. Like, that's what everyone's doing at this point. And basically, they have Sora's data in the computer, 
And like, well, in order to analyze this, he needs to take on these data fights. It's kind of just, you know, justification, like, all right, here's where the data fights come in, the, the super bosses. So here you play as Sora in the computer, you're fighting the data super fights. And it's just like, it's set up almost identically to the Kingdom Hearts 2 Final Mix post-game stuff, where there's 13 doors and you have to fight all these data fights. Um, and they're super bosses. They're very tough. Uh, you're going to be at one health most of the time, probably. Um, and I've been playing on critical, so I've been, I've been wearing out my fingers and my senses on this. Uh, and so this is where, like, this is for people who wanted more challenge because there weren't really any super fights in the original game. This is where it is. Um, and that's that. So this is what I would consider the second part of the DLC. And it can take a while because these fights can be tough. Um, is taking on these super bosses, which I know people were missing. So here they are. Well, the original think... release only had the one Heartless, right? The one door. It was on, like the last the battle gate, which was sort and of... He was just, and he was, and he was just, he was just kind of like a nameless Heartless and wasn't very hard. It, it was a bit of a... It, it was a bit of a joke me. for fun. It... Mm -hmm. um, but I, I found... So, say the last hour of Remind is good. Uh, the limit cut boss battles are all fantastic. I, they're 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 really difficult and they're not for everyone, but the people is nearly perfect. Um, I have I I've got I think two left. Um, I'm I'm kind of trying to take my time on it, not uh overdo it, but I I'm really really enjoying it. And, and can we also touch on? Uh, the update was it 1.07? Well, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just curious. You're, 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 I'm curious. Your experience with these super bosses. Now you're playing on standard, and I'm playing on critical. Not to like brag or whatever. Brag. But so, well, the, so the, the the experience might be different. But like for me, uh, I found Zigbar to be a pain in the ass. <laughs> um, yeah, Zigbar. Firing from a, he fires, he stays away and fires from a distance, and you know you can't really get close to him. Um, I somehow beat. Uh, Ansem, the the Seeker Darkness Ansem, not Ansem. I, I somehow beat him on my first try. He was the only one I beat on my first try. Um, there, there, somehow, <laughs> there are some of them that I I've just I've I blitzed through. I've been like, oh yeah, like it's it's challenging, but like I I can still do this. Um, mm -hmm. but then uh, I, I don't know why, but I just Malusha just the last. He, he, he has, has his, he has his, he has that and I, I don't even know how I beat him. So at the very end of the Marluxia fight, so Marluxia has like this doom thing he does where he puts doom on Sora and then he, he, he puts armor on and you basically have to be, take, you have to wear down his armor health bar before you can take out his last sliver of health. And I don't even know exactly how I did it because he, 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 at that point he like turns into a scythe and just swirls around everywhere and like it's just a mess. And then like somehow, somehow I got a hit on him like when your doom counter is like, reaching like below 10 and you're, I mean you're gonna die anytime now and somehow I beat him like I don't know what I did but he's dead now um so if someone asked for like strategy like what do you do here like I don't know I just did something and he died um have you fought Xion yet uh no that's that's she, who I have left she's apparently she, brutal she is a bit <laughs> Oh. <laughs> language so anyways i want to ask if someone on the outside looking in is there story content locked behind this like every two you beat do you get a cutscene, yes. or, or oh. there is not in that way but there is quite a big bit of story content after well you do um so there's like there's this, like this tiny scene with the final fantasy character um before you do the data fights 
And then during the data fights, like all 13 of them, there's nothing, no scenes or anything. It's just the data fights. And then after you beat all 13 of them, um, then uh, there's like another small scene with the Final Fantasy characters and Fairy Godmother shows up. So like, hey, Disney still exists. Um, and they say like that they have an idea, Merlin and Fairy Godmother have an idea that a key to finding Sora is in Riku's dreams. So that's like another tease. Like, oh yeah, I forgot. There's a section here. Um, the, the later we get into this, more spoilers might be, but Riku talks about a dream where he's in his city and it's basically the, the secret movie of the original game. Like that's apparently a dream Riku had. And he talks about it briefly and like, yeah, I had this dream. I'm not sure what it means. So they're basically kind of explore that um, where he and Sora are in this mysterious city. So that's the end of the data battle stuff, which I consider the second part of Remind, the DLC. And then the final part of the DLC is the secret episode. This is where it gets really spoilery. Are we going to talk about this openly? I, I think we should. Um... Yeah, just quit. Bye. If you're if you don't want to listen to this, see you next yeah. week. Yeah, we, we've, uh, been, we've been kind of spoiling all the way through this, just bits and pieces, uh, so what happens first, what happens second. The... So go ahead. Yeah, so the secret episode, just as is common in the series, this is the tease for what's next. And Sora wakes up in a mysterious place. And he's like, well, I guess I'm still alive in a way. Um, you know, I, he disappeared from the world that we know. And he's here now. Your Zora just starts walking up to him. They have a conversation. It's very brief. Um, if you don't remember, your Zora was the... Uh, um, Sora recognizes Definitely him. not Noctis. Yeah, Sora, rec Sora recognizes Yozora from the video game. Wait, you're Yozora? Like, why do you exist? And then Yozora recognizes Sora. And Sora, that doesn't make sense to anyone here. Like, well, how does he know who Sora is? We don't know. Sora doesn't know. The audience doesn't know. That's just a tease. Like, Yozora knows Sora somehow. And then he basically says that he is going to save Sora. And then he pulls out his weapon. And then you fight him. So that's like the ultimate boss is you fight Yazora. Now, here's the thing. I have gotten to this point, but I have not yet beat him. But in order to, like, if you lose to him, you see a final scene anyway. It's like a sort of battle where it seems like it doesn't matter if you win or not because you're always going to lose. Um, I know there's like an actual achievement for actually beating him, so you can do it. But there's a different if... scene. It's a different scene. Okay, I haven't gotten yeah, that far. He's the, hardest, he's the hardest boss Uh <laughs> I'm uncritical, so it's a pain in the butt, and I haven't really had time to mess with him yet. But, um, so you fight him. There's a scene. I actually have not seen the scene yet. Um, I've seen the scene where you lose. So, and it, it, there is a very blatant Final Fantasy versus thirteen callback there as well. Uh, and then that's it's basically literally reenacting a versus thirteen trailer. Yeah. So that's where that's so where I am in the DLC. <laughs> I, I could, from the information, like it is only like maybe two in total, probably four minutes of new story cutscene stuff uh, with Yazora. But from that, uh, being a Kingdom Hearts nerd and hearing all the theories before, ever since I've seen those scenes, I, my mind has been racing. There is so much that Kingdom Hearts could do next, which is uh, exciting. I I haven't at the end of Kingdom Hearts three, I wasn't excited for the future. Um, I was like, okay, that's done. Uh, there will be more Kingdom Hearts sooner or later, but this big tease is kind of too vague for me to start getting excited. But this tease is like, okay, so they are doing the next Kingdom Hearts, and it's gonna be like this. Um, 
And I really liked uh, Yuzora's character from what we've seen of him. Um, I haven't got to the boss yet, but I've seen all the scenes because uh, I, I like to spill stuff myself. Uh, and I, I'm just fascinated uh, where it's going to go next for the first time since Kingdom Hearts 3. I, I finished it originally. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, that's a big deal for me because it's like my my main series of game that I love. Um, and to know that there's a future for it and that, that future actually interests me is just really cool. Well, it is kind of interesting how even in the original, like in the main game, when you're in the Toy Story world and you first see the uh, the Azora video game, uh, Ver- Vernum Rex or whatever it's called, uh, that it's like, hmm, this seems like it's very... Uh, you know, symbolically attached to versus 13. And they're like, oh yeah, that was intended. That was absolutely intended. Like not not just a tease, not just a throwback, but we're going to use that cutscene and basically model a Kingdom Hearts, you know, scene on top of it. So it's- I will say one thing about the scene with uh, Yuzora, because I'll be blunt. I don't think the DLC is necessarily worth $30 from what I've seen about the amount of content. So I'm waiting for it to go on sale, but I did watch cutscenes so I could talk about this. But um, I know different people are going to have different opinions on whether it's worth it or not. That's perfectly valid and all that. But um, one thing that stood out to me about the final scene with Yazora is that it's not just a random place. It's literally happening in Sora's heart, as far as I can tell. Which well, is, there's there's so much metaphysical existence in yeah. Kingdom Hearts, whether yeah. you're in a heart or in the darkness, in some space between worlds or something. It's just like, yeah, there's some metaphysical sort of existing place. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, it's like uh, one of the first things I noticed when I watched the trailer originally is that Sora's model has been updated for what is looking like, I'm using air quotes here, uh, the real world. Um, yeah, it looks like it looks like what Shibuya. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it, I don't think it's World Ends with you though. I think it's gonna be. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, don't, I don't even know. This is what's great. There's so many. Ways I was I was go. actually gonna ask. Like people were having theories that it was gonna tie into the World Ends with you because it takes place near that. I don't. I don't remember the name of the building, but the Shibuya building with the. I mean, with the I think iconic letters on it. I think but that, is that. Go ahead. I think that's, I think that's gonna happen. I think that's going to happen because we've already had connections with the world ends with you and Kingdom Hearts. Yeah. Now, I should mention that this may not be related at all, but it's there, so people are going to wonder. So when the world ends with you re-released on Switch, it added like a small little like post-game chapter. It has literally nothing to do with Kingdom Hearts, but it's left open. Like something happens to Neku at the very end, and then it's just like, well, we don't know what happens. You'll have to find out. So it's just like, maybe they're both they're they're both Tetsunomiya series. Well, now I, we I see think... that Sora is there in in like a Shibuya like area. So it's just like, huh. Well, apparently, I, I think... apparently, you get um, if you read uh, Yozora's like entry in like the Codex or something or whatever it is after you beat him it says that his name and his appearance are different than what they normally would be. Yeah, he looks a lot like Riku, um, which has been noted. I, I think he's some sort of combination of Sora and Riku's dreams or whatever. Uh, but well, what's here's something to that... consider: is that, well, 
and this is totally out there, if his name and his appearance are different, it could be as simple as, well, theoretically, Neku knows who uh, Sora is. Ooh. I don't know. That would be cool. But the, yeah, the it's, it's funny how be... this all sounds so outlandish, but you you can never completely just put it yeah. off the table. <laughs> I, I saw earlier um, the biggest tease that the original left for The World Ends With You is when in the secret ending, Sora gets up and looks at his hand and he's in Shibuya. And originally I was like, oh my god, that's a dead set for The World Ends With You. Because if you don't know, they have the uh, timer yeah. uh, on their hand indicating they're in the game. But now it looks more like when you lose the Azora, uh, Sora actually gets frozen in a crystal. And he starts, it starts at his hand. He, he starts freezing at his hand. So it looks more like him looking at his hand is him remembering being crystallized. So I think the canon ending is that Sora doesn't beat Azora, and the next game you'll be at level one because you were beaten and crystallized or whatever. And I don't know, j- just stuff like that within the next within the past two days of me thinking about it is just cool. Mm-hmm. So I, I should maybe mention for the sake of completion, this DLC also adds a couple of other just like extraneous things. Uh, first of all, so the three parts of the DLC in my mind are like the storyline of the DLC stuff, which is like 80% cutscene and boss fights. And then there's the beta boss fights. That's the second part. And then there's the Jojora fight, which is like the third part. Those are three parts in my mind. But there's also a bunch of extraneous stuff. For example, there's like this uh, like this photo mode sort of photo, sort of fun little mini gamey create creates photos with the different models in different places. Um, sort of mode. I have not played with it at all because that stuff doesn't really interest me, but that's part of the DLC. And then there's like a new gameplay mode that you can do. And I have not done this either. When you start up a new game, um, there's like easy, it's so weird. It's like easy credits and pro credits where you can do like these little challenges throughout the game. They're like meta game challenges. Um, I know there's like some for bosses like don't heal during certain boss fights. And depending on how many challenges you complete, you get more points. I don't even know if you get anything for this. I know there's some there's some trophies for it if you do it. Um, to be honest, I don't know if I'll bother because that means you have to go through the game again. <laughs> Maybe eventually, for, but you just get a someone who's, trophy. <laughs> for someone who's uh, done the a critical mode playthrough and the standard playthrough, to ask me to go through the game again with <laughs> some extraneous challenges, is, I, I love Kingdom Hearts, but I don't have the time for that. Um, I'd be surprised if anyone is actually interested in these modes. I just seem to yeah, put And like, for example, one of the challenges I saw, and this is the sort of challenges you can expect, is like, you go to the top of Rapunzel's Tower in the Tangled World, and it's like, all right, from here, make your way all the way to the city of Corona, the kingdom, and you can only touch the ground like four times. So you basically have to like jump off the tower and glide as far as you possibly can through the forest. And then there's, there's a couple of points where you have to touch the ground and this is like metagame challenge stuff like that. And I'm just like, do I, I can do this? But what's, I don't care. <laughs> I, I yeah. think it would have been better if they did it like separate challenges where you select it and then it's like, okay, get to here to here, uh, get from here to here. I, I think like, sometimes like, metagame uh, challenges can be fun, but that sounds fun. <laughs> yeah. It, but it seems like you have to do it in a way of like, okay, so you have to start the game again, but keep an eye out for these challenges on the way. And it's like, uh, I, I just can't Apparently- remember. I looked into it very briefly. Apparently, like it's all a lot of it. If if you if you care about getting the trophy, which I think is like the only tangible thing you can get from doing this, that's like the thing you do it for. 
is like it's very missable because you have to like do every single challenge perfectly as soon as it's possible and it's just like uh, i mean it's probably not it feels that like, hard, it feels like, like it'd be better if it was like an arcadey thing where you select from a list yeah, like exactly but i guess that would because because apparently so a lot they of got, they, they have to like, make it somewhat tedious to make it i guess prestigious in a way even though i think but it's not really not. it seems like a lot of the challenges are tied to the bosses so it's like they're missable because like if you fight a boss and you don't complete all the challenges and then you continue then you you failed you didn't get them all and it's just like so basically the reason why i'm talking about this is james was talking about the price of the dlc is 30 dollars. I'm, I'm just trying to think like okay so what's all included you have this about this five hour storyline thing that is like a lot of recap and retread then you have a bunch of super boss battles which are legitimately fun like the main game was missing them and here they are you have the tease the next thing with this yazora stuff then you have this like photo mode thingy and then these challenge thingies so that's that's the dlc um <laughs> so yeah it's, it's it's awesome. and, and not, none of that is none of that is part of the free update no oh the, the free update I meant to mention this earlier. The free update was actually it. It could have been locked to remind, and I would have I would have been fine with that because it, the stuff it adds is really cool. Um, Oathkeeper and Oblivion are fantastic keyblades, and the the form change is really cool. Uh, the combat feels a lot uh, tighter, and they've updated the graphics and stuff. Uh, it's nothing major, but I think if that had been added into Remind, it would feel a bit more worth the value. They're basically. Yeah. Um... Oathkeeper and Oblivion are like two of the series, like, like what's the word? They're popular Keyblades. Like the Oathkeeper is actually the Keyblade that Sora gets basically as from the charm from Kyrie. So it's got like significance there. Um, Oblivion is just a popular one because it's got a cool name and a cool look. But the, you know, I I still use Ultimate Weapon. <laughs> so, well, it seems like it. You you can pick three, right? So now it seems like. Yeah, my rotating ultimate. Well, I, the keyblade I've been using more recently, uh, still like a lot, is the Toy Story one. It's just a cactus. But you get you get lucky strikes, so you use it. You get more items. <laughs> but it it's seems like you, you you rotate between uh, Ultima, Oathkeeper, and Oblivion. There you go. Those are three keyblades. Clearly the best in most circumstances. Yeah. It, it's pretty clear uh, from both what Adam and I are saying is that for the fans, I'd say it's well. Even then, Adam, you don't you don't seem completely sold on it, and you are a fan. Um, sort of. I played the games. I used to yeah. be a bigger fan than I was, or I used to be a bigger fan than I. Um, I, as someone like I said earlier, I'm sitting here like wondering when I'm going to play through this because you know anime BS, whatever you want to call it. I'm sitting here grinning when you guys are describing it, and I don't care that I'm spoiled uh, or whatever. But like, I, I want to experience this because. Some games, I think, do go too hard trying to be believable or deep or dark and just have a game, just have fun with it, just to show that obviously the creators are passionate about this. They're 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 not going to I'm not saying if it's dark or believable that they're not passionate, but just to see a game allow itself to be wacky and silly and stupid in a good way. Yeah, depending on who I, I, I just feel like I legitimately think this formatting for the DLC, the, the, the five hour like retread of the final world paying money to get that like in addition to what the original game already had that, that was probably not the best way to do it it's yeah I can like see i feel that, like it but... should have been like that it should have been like that to begin with in a way because it almost feels like they just wanted to expand on it and they did but it's just kind of tedious um 
And it's just, I was actually kind of mad. Like I, I, I'm pretty sure I live by myself, but I'm pretty sure I, at one point I, I exclaimed, oh, come on. Like <laughs> just watching these scenes play and it's just like the same stuff we've already seen. And it's just like, I have to watch this again. Like, okay. There are I, a lot still, of cutscenes. <laughs> I, I still think it's worth it. Um, personally for the fans, I, I would definitely recommend it for everyone else. I would say the price is a, a, a bit too much because thirty dollars is a lot to ask mm-hmm. for any DLC. Really, like how much was Iceborne as an expansion? Well, Iceborne is almost forty, price, I right? believe, or forty. Oh, well, that, that that was that was basically a whole new game, though. But to yeah. like to put that up in comparison, uh, mm-hmm. remind is at max. I'd say twelve hours of content if you're really pushing it. It depends on how long it takes you to beat those super bosses. So twenty hours then. Yep, sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on whether it's you're on standard or critical. Way, yeah. But definitely seems like almost to wrap it back around, kind of like the Kakarot discussion, where it's like, you know, there's certain people who are going to play this, and they're not going to care about anything that someone might call tedious or stupid or BS. They're going to just be grinning the whole time, like George was. So. In, I mean, in a I way, still recognize that a lot of people... yeah. So ten out of ten in our hearts, but we'll have to see what George comes up with when he yeah. puts his coming coming on paper. soon. All right, so that is, I guess, a wrap up of our discussion about Kingdom Hearts, both Project Xehanort, which we don't really have a lot to think about yet, other than you know hoping that it uh, plays a little bit less like the previous mobile game. And then Remind, which basically is a bridge to whatever Kingdom Hearts has going forward, which it seems like George is really pumped about. Oh, yeah. All right. So that kind of wraps up our discussion points for this week. As always, uh, you can find us at our website at rpgsite.net. We're very active on Twitter at Twitter RPG Site. Uh, you can find us also on Facebook and YouTube at at RPG site net. And then you can always find our TetraCast on both iTunes and Google play or Google music, whichever one it's under. We'll have a link to it in the uh, news article. And then we have our individual handles. If you ever want to follow us in addition to our main website, uh, I'm Brian Vitale. You can find me at Zeo Masicot, Z E O M A S S I C O T. Uh, George, where can they find you? Uh, so I'm George Foster, and uh, pretty much all of my socials are at G-E-P-U-G-G, uh, so at G-Pug. All right. Adam, how about you? K-I-N-G underscore S-E-D-A. And James, where can they find you? Um, you can find me at T-H-E-S-W-W-E-E-T. All right. That's sweet. King Sita, G-Pug, and Zeo Mascot. So... We're still planning on doing this podcast regularly. Sometimes it'll be every week, like it happened to be this week. Sometimes it might be every other week. But we hope you do listen in. Please give us a comment on anything you like that we're doing or anything we can do better. And obviously, you're free to do that on anything that we post to our website, our social. And we will see you next time. See you next time, guys. Later. Later.